Mark chapter 4. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some sea fell along the path. And as he sowed, birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden and plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thank you so much, Sam. You like nervous about clapping? (laughs) Can we do this in church? On June 6th, 1944, if you're a history nerd, you might know this date, the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy to begin invading northern France on what is known as D-Day. Nearly 5,000 Allied forces died, but when D-Day was over, something had changed in World War II. Most experts agree that D-Day really marks the end of the conflict in an existential kind of way. That once this successfully had taken place, things had changed so substantially that the victory of World War II was kind of in its grasp. The only problem with that is that for about a year, a lot of people did not know the Allied forces had won World War II. D-Day may be a significant conflict, it may have totally changed the way the war was working, but for another year, it took for that victory to be actualized in the world of Europe. Experts may agree that D-Day signals the end of World War II, but Nazi Germany did not know that D-Day was the end of World War II. Occupied Poland and Paris and Austria did not know that it was the end of World War II. The confessing church who resisted Nazi Germany in in Germany did not know that it was the end of World War II, and worst of all, those who suffered in concentration camps did not know that when D-Day happened, it was the end of World War II. World War II would not officially end for another year, in May 8th of 1945, VE Day, Victory Day. That was the moment that whatever had happened at D-Day, it actually became actualized for this Europe that was so colonized and conquered by Nazi Germany. In theological language, we call that the tension of already, not yet. Something has happened, something big has occurred, something big has changed the world around us, like D-Day. And that is a victory that signals some kind of end to something, but it takes a while for that end to be actualized in a way that feels real in our lives. It takes a while for whatever happened in that moment to change the world around us. The already not yet is the tension of something big has occurred, but is not finished. DA has happened, but not everyone feels it yet. Jesus is resurrected, but not everyone knows it yet. This space in between is what the the New Testament writer Mark is wrestling with with the people that he is writing to are wrestling with. Mark is writing his letter to a small church in Rome. And they have experienced the good news of Jesus, 
This letter is being written sometime between AD 60 and 75, somewhere around there. So the church has actually existed for a little while. This church is beginning to grow. It's beginning to gather adherence, but it's still a small community. And so they are experiencing the good news of Jesus, and yet at the same time, they are experiencing maybe the most serious persecution the church will experience. Peter and Paul have both most likely been martyred at this moment. Nero is ruling and will blame the fire of Rome on Christians in a moment. Not only are Christians being persecuted in this moment, but Palestine is just an interesting place to live generally. Jews are about to revolt against Rome. The temple is about to be destroyed. It's a violent, chaotic, hard place to live, especially for a community of people who believe that Jesus is alive and ruling and that his kingdom is already. And so the question that the people in Mark's moment are asking is, well, if Jesus is victorious, where is that victory? If something big has happened, where do we get to experience the consequences or the ramifications or the emanations of that big change? If he has won, when do we experience his victory? If D-Day has happened, when is victory day? When does it spread to our place, our part of the world? When does it spread to us? How is Jesus at work in the world if he's victorious? So they're asking this question, like in light of who Rome is, in light of the power structures around us, in light of who we are, how do we know where Jesus' victory is? How do we taste Jesus' victory? And then how do we participate in that victory as the people of Jesus? As a small church in Rome, how do we engage in this thing that Jesus is doing? How do we join it? How do we actualize it? How do we make it real in our own lives? How do we be the church in the world around us? That's the question on the table when Mark writes his letter to the church in Rome. And what he wants to do for them is he wants to help them see what God is doing in the midst of their circumstances. To say like, yes, the world is chaotic, and yes, you are feeling persecuted, and yes, you probably want to bail, but God is at work doing something here. There is a victory that is emerging around you. You just have to see it. He's going to help them try to see what God is doing around them, and he's going to help them join in on the thing that God is doing all around them. And so this moment in Mark chapter 4 that we just had read comes out of that conviction to help the people see what God is doing and to help them join it. And chapter 4 begins with maybe one of the most famous parables of Jesus' parable ministry, the parable of the sower. And I, I think it's interesting that it's probably, on its surface, the most easy to understand or the most straightforward parable. You have a person, he's sowing seed in a, for, in a field, the seed gets planted in good soil, and then it grows. Everybody understands how that works. I don't understand in a garden, I understand if you plant seeds in good soil, it'll grow. I get it. So everybody understands that part of the parable. But what I love about this moment is that after Jesus tells it, the disciples and those who are with him pull him over and they say, in Mark 4, verse 10 through 11, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest you should turn and be forgiven. 
He has like a really strange moment where Jesus says like, hey, to you who are with me, I speak in parables because you'll get it. The secret of the kingdom has been given to you. And those outside, they're actually not going to get it. And I feel like at first glance, it feels so harsh. But then, like you hear the way the disciples respond. The disciples are like, Jesus, we appreciate your confidence in us, but we don't get it at all. And so then he has to explain what he just said to them that they understand further. And so that leads to like an interesting question. Well, if the disciples don't understand what the parable is for, and those who are following Jesus do not understand the parable, what are these parables for? What are they trying to do in our lives if no one gets the point? I think part of the thing that makes this difficult for us is that we often want parables or Jesus' teachings to be about instruction. Like as though he's laying out proposals and principles of truth, like factoids. And if we can just listen to the facts and we'd understand what Jesus is doing. But parables are not about instruction. Parables are about disrupting something so that they might reveal something else. They're out about disrupting what is normal, what is status quo, so that it might make space for a different way of seeing the world around you. So Jesus does this by taking something that is very normal and then making it abnormal. So it is normal to sow in your fields. Very normal. What is abnormal is to throw seed on the road. What is abnormal is to throw seed into the thorns. What is abnormal is to be so reckless and careless with where you put something you value. That is what is abnormal. Everyone who's listening to Jesus would have been like, oh yeah, people sow in their fields and good soil produces good plants. But this crazy person is just putting it everywhere. And that's the thing that matters in this moment. He takes something normal, makes it abnormal, makes it strange in order to reveal something. And so what is the recklessness of the sower reveal? What is it trying to disrupt in that moment? Well, who is around Jesus in that moment? Well, religious elites and those who have been ostracized by religious elites. Those who have done the right things, those who have accomplished the right purposes, those who have the right religious pedigrees, they surround Jesus. And the Jewish religious elites have a high standard on purity, on demarcating themselves, on distinguishing themselves from others by what they do and how they perform, about drawing lines around their own person and existence and excluding other people. So that's the immediate context. And then when Mark is writing his letter to the Church of Rome, there's a new problem because Gentiles or non-Jewish converts have filled the church at a rate significantly higher than Jewish believers. And all of a sudden, these like Jewish leaders are like, well, what do we do with this? How do we handle all these people who are not of the same race as us, who are not of the same bloodline as us, who don't have the same practices as us or the culture of us or the same way of life as us? And it leads to tension. So Mark writes this letter. He puts this parable in it to disrupt this kind of moment. To disrupt a moment where someone would like to draw lines around where God is working. To disrupt a way of thinking about God that is controlled or limited or small. 
It is to push on the boundaries of how often we think that God only does certain things or he only works in certain kinds of ways. Or even worse, it is to push on an imagination that would say we are the only good soil. And God is only at work in our midst. The parable puts something abnormal to say, well, hold on. This sower is at work recklessly. He's at work in the midst of all spaces, spaces that we least expect. Now, in the context, this would have been a really interesting moment because the Jewish believers who are welcoming in or trying to figure out how to welcome in these Christian believers, what they want to do is they want Christians to embrace a way of life. So, like, okay, you can be a follower of Jesus, but to be a follower of Jesus, you need to get circumcised. Right? Before you can be a follower of Jesus, you need to assent to all of these beliefs. Before you can be a follower of Jesus, you need to embrace this kind of way of life. And so they begin to draw lines around the presence of Jesus, so they bring the presence of God around the presence of the community and say, like, yes, you can participate in this work that we're doing, but you have to figure this stuff out. You have to deal with these lines. But Jesus tells a parable of a sower who sows recklessly. Who is at work in all places, carelessly throwing his word everywhere. Field, path, in all places. Paul, the apostle, will call this the very mystery of the gospel. In Ephesians 3, 6, he'll say, This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The thing that's being disrupted is our tendency to exclude. This parable is disrupting exclusion of, reveal, of religion and revealing how the kingdom of God works. It is going to emerge in places that we do not expect and in places that we never saw it coming. That's how the kingdom of Jesus works. And then you see this. Like, if you don't believe it in the parable, Jesus will just illustrate it with his entire Life. He'll call a tax collector to be his follower. He'll show grace to a religious leader named Nicodemus. He'll celebrate the faith of a Roman centurion. He'll forgive a woman caught in adultery. He'll forgive a man on a cross. He'll heal both the poor and the rich and challenge both. And in each moment, no matter where you want to draw lines, you see the kingdom of Jesus is emerging in each of those different places, and the sower is going to each of those different places saying that you want to draw lines, and you want to demarcate, and you want to say that God can only be working in these kinds of places, or in this kind of experience, or in this kind of situation. And Jesus is like, that is not how the kingdom works. It will always be unexpected. The sower sows recklessly. Field and path and thorns... And we do not get to decide which one is which. So that leads us to an important question. What are our unexpected places? What are the unexpected places in our own lives that it's hard for us to imagine Jesus at work? It is hard for us to imagine the kingdom emerging. It's hard for us to imagine the sower going about sowing seeds. Where are the unexpected places in our own lives? Maybe that's even ourselves. Maybe it's a kind of community, a kind of political party. People who identify this way or people who identify this way. Where are the unexpected places 
in your life. Where the kingdom of God is emerging. Now, in case we don't get it, like the disciples, Jesus adds more parables to this moment to to really make it stick that the kingdom of God is going to work in unexpected ways. So in Mark 4, verse 21, he begins a new parable. Begins it with a question. He says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? I was reading one commentator this week who was like, you know, we never talk enough about what Jesus means by putting a lamp under a bed. He's like, because if you put open flame under a bed, you will kill yourself. He's like, did Jesus mean that? It is really easy for our beliefs, for our values, for the things that are really good, to become barriers to the presence of Jesus. For example, holiness all throughout Scripture is a way of describing who God is. His creative, powerful, loving presence. Right? It's about describing and identifying him. Holiness is who he is, and it is something that emanates out of him like the sun, like rays from the sun. And it is powerful, and it is scorching, and it can totally do damage and destruction if we're not right, but it is something that emanates out of who God is, right? It rests in the temple. People are actually nervous about entering into the presence of God because it is so holy, weighty, good, powerful. So all throughout Scripture, holiness is a picture of something that is emanating from God. But so often, something like holiness stops being about God at all, and it becomes about us and what we do. And in that situation, holiness is no longer something that flows out of God to people and into the world, but it becomes a barrier around ourselves and around who God is. So instead of holiness being a part of knowing God, holiness becomes a barrier to knowing God. So if you want to know who God is, you've got to do blank. If you want to know who the people are, you have to be blank. You have to assent to blank. You have to name blank. Those are barriers. Jesus' parable in this moment is about disrupting that normal to reveal how his kingdom works. He's saying, like a sower, he works in unexpected places. And his kingdom is like a light uncovered shining into the world. Holiness. It's not a barrier to who God is, but an emanating experience of the presence of God, outworked in relationship with God. Right, you see this all throughout Scripture. Israel is supposed to live in such close proximity to who God is that they would emanate God's presence with him into the world. They'd be a blessing to who God is. The church is referred to as a living temple because God's presence would dwell specially in them and emanate into the world. So we have made something a barrier to entrance, and God is like, in this moment, Jesus is like, hold on, you have missed what the kingdom is supposed to be. It is not supposed to have walls that are built around it. Instead, holiness emanates out of it back into the world. Instead of a God being someone who sows in only specific places, he is a reckless sower who is spreading his word into all places unexpectedly. Do you see what the kingdom is? Do you see what the kingdom is? Do you understand what it is like? Do you understand how it is moving? Do you understand that it is unexpected, uncontrollable? See, each of these parables, what they are doing is they are challenging how we see the kingdom and our own role within it. 
And that is so hard for us because it challenges our control and it removes it from our hands. That's the next parable that Jesus says in verse 26 to 29. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You cannot control where Jesus is working or even how Jesus is working. We don't get to draw lines. We don't get to build barriers. We don't get to determine how or what or where. Our job, instead, is simply to join God in the work that he's doing. We do not get to determine what the work is. We get to see what God is doing and join in the work that he's doing. We don't get to draw lines around it. We get to discern where he's moving, how he's moving, and then submit our lives to the thing that God is doing and participate in his work. There's this quote by uh, Martin Luther, who was part of the... (laughs) Nice part of the Reformation, and and I do think this is a very funny quote. He says, when talking about his work in the Reformation, he says, this is it. All I did is I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and drank beer with my friends, the word did everything. Right? It's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Our job is not to carry the weight, to force the work, or to draw the lines. It is instead to join God in the work that he is already doing in the world around us. To participate in what God has already begun. And like a seed under the surface of the earth, God is germinating something. He is bringing something about, making something real, fermenting something underneath the surface. And our job is to pay attention to it, to see where it is growing, to join in on it. And the very first place that this is happening is in us. The Bible will use a, dump, a bunch of different metaphors to name what the church is. Sometimes it'll call us the first fruits of the kingdom. The first fruits of the kingdom, right? Meaning that something is germinating under the surface. It is beginning to grow up in the first signs and evidences of this thing that God is doing. Oh, that's the church. Or sometimes the Bible will call us a living temple that God has uniquely put his presence within us and we're called to participate in his, his presence emanating that out into the world. Sometimes the Bible will say that we were delivered out of darkness into a kingdom of light here and now. There's all these different metaphors and language to describe what the church is. And each and every one of those moments, is, it's saying that God is doing something already in the church. That we live a little closer to D-Day than other people. That we live a little closer to the victory of Jesus than the world around us. This is a quote by a theologian. I think it sums it up really well. He says, the difference between Christians and the world is not a spatial one. It's a matter of timing. The church is already where the world is heading because of God. The world just doesn't know it yet. 
So we are the first to experience the victory of Jesus. And so then our job is to participate in this ongoing victory that God is doing around us, to invite the world into it, to say, hey, the kingdom is at hand, the same way that Jesus did, repent and turn. The kingdom is on your doorstep. Would you enter it? Victory is emerging in the midst of you. Would you respond to it? The church is where the world is headed. I love that. The church is where the world is headed. The difference is not one of space, but of time. We live closer to the victory of Jesus, closer to that emanating source of presence, and it changes things. For me, that changes how I think about what the work of the church is. I think about actually everything that is like can kind of include it in the life of the church. Right? It's easy for me to think about evangelism as something that is about like trying to convince somebody to adopt like certain kinds of truth claims or precepts or ideas. And that's true and that is important. But the larger work of evangelism is to say, hey, the kingdom is at hand. It is emerging in the midst of you. Do you see it? Do you want to join in the work of it? And then as you get closer to the presence of Jesus, these other things begin to emanate from you, begin to change, begin to shift. You can't enter into the holiness of God and not have it change you. But it's like a different priority of options. If we are about announcing or joining in the emerging victory of Jesus, that changes our posture. I am not better. I just live closer to victory than you do. I am not bringing you to God. I'm actually joining God as he moves towards you. So the gospel is about proclaiming good news, announcing that the kingdom is at hand, and inviting you to come in. Now, I think that's really good news. I think that changes, for me, how I see the church, how I see my own life in the church. But it is objectively hard. I think maybe the hardest part about it is we struggle to see it. The final parable in this section is the parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus tells us that the kingdom is like a tiny seed. I think the point of that is to say, like, right, if you put something normal and then make it abnormal, that's how this works. And so he's putting it like it is so tiny, and that is so disruptive to how we want God to work and how we want to participate in the work of God. The early Jews rejected Jesus because he did not fit their picture of a Messiah, of a king. And the kingdom that he offered did not fit the image and notion and ideas of a kingdom that they had. They could not see in the tiny seed what God was doing. I think that's true of us. That I so often miss what God is doing because I am unwilling to see in unexpected places what God is germinating. I am unwilling to see the power of, of the, the, the things that he's doing in the midst of us, that he's doing right here in this moment. I'm unwilling to see that, and so I often reject it and reject him. I think that's why Mark actually ends this section with the story of the calming of the storm. 
which after reading a bunch of parables about like how the kingdom works, almost feels like out of tone. So you might skip it. But I think it's really deliberate. But if you're not familiar with the story, Jesus' disciples, they get into a boat. So after a full day of teaching, Jesus takes a nap. They're journeying into the water and a storm emerges. And so the disciples get scared. They call Jesus and Jesus looks at the storm and he says, peace, be still. And it is. I think that moment illustrates everything that we've just talked about. Because everywhere that Jesus goes, all the things that he does, the way that he teaches, his parables, his healings, his instructions, they are moments where D-Day and Victory Day overlap. Where the world, because of Jesus, catches up to the thing that God is doing. Where you can see the emerging victory of God in the world. Jesus is always that overlap. Even incarnation, God in the flesh, that's what it means, right? He is the overlap. So we get to see that moment of space and time kind of merging together. We see in his healings and the way that he casts out demons and the parables. And we see it right here when Jesus calms the storm. One commentator described it like this. He says, what if there were times when certain bits of the world's process came together in such a way that the whole cluster of happenings became a bit more open to God's final purposes? What if the world were sometimes a bit more transparent to the underlying acts of God? See, in this moment, Jesus makes the world a little bit more transparent. Sometimes you'll hear Heather say, a thin place. The world in Jesus becomes a little thin, or you see the world catch up, and if we're paying attention, we're like, oh, Oh, I see it. Oh, I see the, the victory of Jesus beginning to emerge. I see it in him, the center of this thing that we're doing. So the question that we ask ourselves right at the end of that moment is just to say, like, well, do we see it? Do we see the thing that God is doing in the world around us? Are we paying attention to how God is working, where God is working, in us, around us, through us, and in unexpected places, do we see it? Are we paying attention to it? Because the majority of the world around Jesus' time, they were not. Do we see the thing that Jesus is doing? Do we see that he's sowing in unexpected places, drawing to himself unexpected people in his own way, in his own timing, do we see how it challenges our control? Do we see how it's happening in us and around us? Are we willing to surrender to it? To surrender our lives to the thing that God is doing? So that we might participate in it? Participate in the emerging kingdom of Jesus? Or will we reject Jesus and the thing that he's doing? because we're unable to see it. Now you might be asking, that's great, but how do we see it? How do we discern it if it is like so hard and small or unexpected? And so I've just prepared a few, I guess you say questions to ask yourselves or ways to think through it. 
I think one of the ways that we discern it is we listen and look in unexpected places. This for me is important. I have to challenge myself because I want to hold superiority or control over where God is working. And so like telling myself a parable, looking in an unexpected places to say like, well, how is God moving in places I never expect him to? So we need to look and listen in unexpected places. We need to erase the arbitrary lines that we've drawn and that Jesus hasn't. I draw a lot of lines that are not coming out of Scripture or that do not come from Jesus. I often draw lines around Missio because I'm like, oh yeah, this Missio is going to be a different kind of community than other communities. Your God is uniquely at work here and not in other communities. So I have to erase those lines that I've drawn. I have to submit myself to God's presence and work. I think that's a daily practice that we're trying to engage in. What does it look like to submit ourselves to this thing that's happening in unexpected places, to say, I will not try to control it, but will instead submit myself to the thing that God is doing and then just join him in it. And then I think we have to ask, what is possible here? This is something you never see happening with the Pharisees who are around Jesus. There's never a moment to say, like, well, what is possible in light of who Jesus is? What is possible in our own lives if Jesus is at work there? What is possible in this community if Jesus is really at work here? What is possible in this city if God has called people to himself to submit to his presence as he germinates his kingdom? What is actually possible in light of that? I think this is a hard thing to do. So there's one more tool. There's a prayer that I have been praying a lot lately. It's a historic prayer known as the Epiclesis. And it is a prayer that the people of Jesus have been praying for literally thousands of years as they would gather around the table. And it's a way of inviting us to say that God is present. Like, we really believe that. We, like, believe that God is present with us. And so the epiclesis is saying, God, would you show us that you are present? Would you make your presence real to us? And then would you challenge us to submit to the thing that you're doing? Or we've been praying this for thousands of years. And so lately I've been praying it a lot in my own life before I enter something that's hard. Before I enter something that scares me, specifically. Because when I'm afraid, I want to control and I want to rewrite other people's narratives and say that God cannot possibly be at work in this place. And so what I need to do is I need to go in defensively. And so what I've been doing is I've been praying this prayer so that God, you work in unexpected places in mysterious ways. Would you help me see your presence, know your presence, and submit to it? Would I actually be willing to be surprised by the thing that you're doing? So I've been praying it before I enter places that I'm afraid of, I had the joy of praying at a wedding recently. And I had the joy in a strange and hard way of praying at a funeral recently. Because in each moment, like, I, I, I need to be surprised by the thing that God is doing. And if I try to control it, I am unwilling and often resistant to being surprised by the thing that God is doing. And so what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray this prayer over us as we come to the table. This is a moment where we practice it. Where we believe right here that there's that space where like time and space are overlapping and we're catching up to the thing that God is doing and it forms us into a people who would then go be this in the world. So right now I'm gonna pray it over us. 
So that this moment, we might be attentive to God's presence, might be surprised by the thing that he's doing, but more than anything else, that we would leave this place of people of God's presence who would be surprised by him and join in the work that he's doing. So, Missy, let me pray this over you. And then we'll continue worshiping by gathering on the table. But don't let it stay here. Don't only ask the question, do we see right now? Become a people of those questions. Amen? Let's pray. God, we know you're present. Here with us, in us, and all around us. We know you are at work germinating your kingdom under the surface and bringing about your victory. We know it, but man, we often miss it. We're trying to control it. So God, right now, help us to see your work, to submit to your work, and to join in and participate with you. Amen. Missio, you when you're ready, we invite you to the table to participate and submit to the work of God. The bread is gluten-free. The cup is non-alcoholic. Come to the table. There'll be people over here to pray with you and continue worshiping with us.